our series walking through the book of James, as you guys saw on our uh, bumper video there and our graphic. You know, we've been walking through the book of James. Now, this has been a kind of a longer series. It's actually an 11-week series, and uh, this week is our second to last week. So we've been in the book of James for a long time, but don't worry if you, this is your first week here, it's not like you really missed a whole bunch. You can always go get caught up on our podcast, uh, churchatcanebay.org, um, in case you missed any of it. But uh, just to kind of clue you guys in, if this is your first week or if, if you're kind of new, new around here, um, just to kind of clue you guys in on what we've been talking about. See, the book of James really only has like one main idea. There are a lot of smaller ideas that kind of fit underneath that category, but the book of James really only has one main idea. And that one main idea is that what we believe should change the way that we live, right? Our beliefs and our actions cannot be separate. It's impossible. And so what James says is if we're acting differently than we say we believe, we don't really believe it, right? And if you actually believe something, it's going to change the way that you live. That's been something that we've been digging into uh, with multiple different aspects of our lives. And so today, we're going to dig into kind of the second half of chapter 5 in James. We're going to go through verses 7 to 11. And at first, when we first read through this passage, it might seem a little bit scattered. Like, it might seem like James has a little bit of ADD. Um, but... But what we're going to find is if we look at it through this lens that, that what we believe should change the way we live, um, it's actually going to make a lot of sense to us. So what I want to do to start today is I just want to read through that passage together. You guys cool with that? All right, so here, here we go. James chapter 5, verses 7 through 11. So it says, Dear brothers and sisters, be patient as you wait for the Lord's return. Consider the farmers who patiently wait for the rains in the fall and in the spring. They eagerly look for the valuable harvest to ripen. You too must be patient. Take courage, for the coming of the Lord is near. Don't grumble about each other, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. For look, the judge is standing at the door. For examples of patience and suffering, dear brothers and sisters, look at the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We give great honor to those who endure under suffering. For instance, you know about Job, a man of great endurance. You can see how the Lord was kind to him at the end, for the Lord is full of tenderness and mercy. So, I think it's important, as any time that we're reading the Bible, right, we need to ask some questions about what's going on here, right? Why is James writing what he's writing to the people that he's writing it to, right? I think it's a really important thing for us to understand. So I want to give you guys a little bit of context before we continue on, okay? Now, we've already talked about this in the book of James a few times, but, but in the beginning of the very, the very beginning of the book of James, James says that he's writing to the dispersed Jews. He says that the Jews have been scattered, so they don't have their own nation anymore. They're living as foreigners in foreign lands, and they're kind of scattered all over the place, right? And you can just imagine, like, you know, we used to be Americans, and now, like, we're just scattered all over the place, and we don't really have a place to call home. Like, that would just be so hard, right? And so the Jews have been scattered. They're dispersed, is what he says. And he's writing this letter in particular to a dispersed people group, okay? Now, not only are they dispersed, but they're living in foreign lands, okay? Now, if you think about what it would be like to have to go to a nation that's not your own, that's owned by some other country, and you're not a citizen of that country, it would probably be kind of hard to get on your feet, correct? Like, it would be kind of difficult to get things going, right? We used to own property, and now we don't, because that property is somebody else's now, right? We used to have money, but that business kind of went under, right? And, and so you can imagine he's writing 
to these families that are scattered all over the place, and they're kind of like down and out, right? They've experienced some serious hardship and some serious suffering, and their whole lives have been turned upside down. And then James writes this letter. Now, on top of this, the places that these Jews have been scattered to Uh, The people that owned land and that owned the businesses and things like that in these foreign countries, um, many biblical scholars believe that they were not the nicest people to the Jews. They didn't really want the Jews around. It wasn't really, it was kind of inconvenient to have to host all these other people from this other nation, you know. And so what a lot of biblical scholars believe is that the people that owned everything were kind of like exploiting and extorting the Jews. They were taking advantage of the Jews being down and out. And instead of being generous from their abundance, they were making it really, really hard on the Jews. Like you could imagine just, you know, super high interest loans or, or getting people to kind of work for money and just be enslaved for the rest of their lives. And these are the kind of things that the people that James writes to are experiencing, okay? Now last week, Will talked about wealth, because the first half of this chapter 5, James is addressing the wealthy, and he's actually addressing these people that have abundance and are not being generous with it. So he's talking to these people that have abundance, and they're instead being greedy and exploiting the people that are on the under. So you guys see what's going on? James is writing to the rich in the first half, and that's what we went through last week, right? And that was kind of a hard message for us to take in, right? Because we go, wow, we're rich. Like, what are we doing with our abundance? Are we being generous with our abundance, right? Well, what's happening today, what's happening in the second half of this chapter is James turns his attention and he starts writing to the oppressed. So the first half of the chapter, he's writing to the oppressors and the second half of the chapter, he's writing to the oppressed. Are you guys with me? Okay, cool. So now that we have a little bit of context, what I want to say is even though we may not experience oppression like these Jews we're experiencing, I think all of us are walking through or have walked through um, some serious hardship, right? Some of us are dealing with loss. Some of us are dealing with, uh, with anxiety or depression that feels extremely heavy. Some of us are dealing with a rough financial situation or a broken relationship, right? Some of us, our marriages are struggling. And so even though we may not know what it's like to be scattered into a foreign land, I think a lot of us know suffering, right? A lot of us have experienced hardship, and some of us have experienced real oppression, right? And so as we dig into this passage today, what I want to caution you of is, is let's not just sit back and go, oh, this doesn't apply to me, because God's trying to speak something that's new today to you, amen? All right, so let's pray real quick. Father, thank you so much for this morning. I thank you for the people that are in this room. God, we pray that right now your spirit would just open our eyes and our hearts and our minds that we would be able to see and hear you clearly through the reading of scripture. Jesus, we pray that we would see you. Lord, teach us how to live. Teach us how to be more like you. We love you, Jesus. In his holy name, everyone said. Amen. Okay, cool. So I think what happens here in this passage is I think James gives us three main takeaways, okay? I think James gives us three main takeaways when we're experiencing hardship or suffering, okay? Now, the first one that I think that James kind of addresses here is he tells us to take courage. So if you're writing notes, you can just write down, take courage. 
See, in James 5, verse 7, just the first half of 7, he says, Dear brothers and sisters, be patient as you wait for the Lord's return. Now, I have to, I have to kind of give you guys a little bit of a glimpse into my childhood a little bit um, to kind of explain where I'm coming from with this passage. Because, um, because I, so I grew up in a Christian home, right? And I love my parents and I love my family. And they did so well to instruct me in the way of the Lord. Um, but there was one thing that just, and it wasn't intentional on their part. It was no fault of theirs. Um, but there was one thing that anytime I would read the Bible, it would just like, it, it would just, I would immediately hit, like I'd hit this brick wall, right? And this brick wall that I would hit when I would read the Bible is any time that it would talk about the Lord's return or the day of the Lord or Jesus coming back. Sometimes we say it, right? And the reason that I would hit a brick wall is because, man, it terrified me. I was so scared, right? Can anybody relate? I was so scared. I don't know why I was scared. I don't think anybody necessarily instilled that fear into me. I just think I didn't understand it, but I was so scared. Like, I remember, I remember Y2K. Y'all remember Y2K? Man, right? Like, okay, so I don't know why. I, I was too young to really understand it, but I remember that everyone was freaking out about Y2K, right? Like, once the clock struck midnight, it was like all the computers in the world were going to die for some reason. And, and I don't know why, but... But people in the circles that we ran in at the time, like, this was the apocalypse. This was the end of the world. I don't know why computers dying means that the whole world comes to an end. But, but like, we really thought, like, at midnight, I don't, I don't know if my parents thought this, but I thought this for sure. Like, at midnight, Jesus was coming back and just everything's over, right? And I was terrified, man. Like, I remember sitting in front of the TV, and we're watching the ball drop, and I just remember, like, shedding a few tears. Like, it's all over, guys. It's been a good run. I was, like, 10, you know? Like, it's all over, guys. It's done. Good, you know? Like, I remember, I remember laying in bed at night, and I'd, and I'd heard something about a, a, a loud trumpet sounding when Jesus was coming back. You know, you guys have heard this, right? And I remember, man, like it was the craziest thing. A train whistle has never sounded more like a trumpet than when I was like 10 and 11 years old laying in bed at night, right? And I just remember, man, I would hear this train whistle or a plane fly. It didn't even have to sound like a trumpet. It's just a plane going over, right? And I'm just like, oh, no, it's the end of the world. And I remember making deals with God, like, like. If you just let me live and just let this all unfold until I can get married and have a family. Like, I always wanted to have a family, you know? And I'm like, man, I would just love it if you could just wait. Like, just give me, like, 15 more years, God. Like, I'll, like it'll be okay, right? And I was making deals with God. Like, I'll never commit another sin if you just wait to come back for, like, 20 more years, right? <clears throat> it was so funny. But, like, I really associated this, like, the Lord's return or the day of the Lord with fear. Like it was just this anxiety. Like I, I genuinely, I call it rapture anxiety, but like I genuinely, like I had this like deep seated fear and it was real. And so anytime that I would read passages like this, it, I would just shut it down. Like, I'm like, I don't care what it's trying to say. Right. Because it was so scary to me. And I really, I, I really think what it was is I just didn't really understand. I didn't understand what the Bible actually says about the day of the Lord. I didn't understand what the Bible actually means when it talks about the Lord's return. Are you guys with me? So let's just look at this passage here in Revelation 21. This is kind of 
forecasting to the, to the very end of, of all things as we know it, right? This is Revelation 21. This is at the end. It says, And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them, and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. You guys see that with word in there? Isn't that awesome? He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. You see that? Like, I just, I had this like massive fear about what the day of the Lord would look like. And then we read in scripture and, and, you know, I thought, what I thought it was, to be honest with you guys, what I thought it was, is I thought at the end of all things, what's going to happen is I am going to, like, magically be pulled up into, the, into heaven, right? And that, that we would be in heaven forever, right? Because that's, that's, what, that's what we think, right? And we would be in heaven forever, and we would just be singing constantly. And I'm a worship leader, and that doesn't sound good to me. You guys hear me? <laughs> Like, I'm like, I get wings, and I'm just, like, chilling up there singing all day. Like, my voice is going to get tired, right? And I I just didn't think, like, it was going to be that fun. I didn't think it was going to be that appealing. I thought, you know what? Like, even though I'm only 10 and I can't even drive and I don't do anything, like, I would rather be here, right? But you see what happens here at at the end of Revelation. What it says is that that at the end of all things, right, after however it plays out, that heaven is actually coming down here. Do you see that? It says, I saw it coming out of heaven and that God was coming down to earth, that God would be with his people. Do you see that? That that God is actually bringing the kingdom the way he's always wanted things to be here. That that's what the end, the actual end actually looks like. Look at when Peter is preaching in Acts. He, he, this is like one of the first sermons of the early church, Acts 3. It says, now repent of your sins and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped away. Then times of refreshment will come from the presence of the Lord and he will again send you Jesus, your appointed Messiah. For he must remain in heaven until the time for the final restoration of all things, as God promised long ago through his holy prophets. So you see this, like the New Testament understanding, the Christian understanding of the very end of all things. I know this is kind of big and, and theological, but like the, the New Testament understanding of the very end of all things is that Jesus is coming back here and he's going to make all things right here. Now, is there a restoring process? Absolutely. When we die, aren't we in heaven with Jesus? Absolutely. But you see, at the very end, when Jesus decides that it's time for his kingdom to be fully realized, it actually happens here. And you notice what they said in Revelation, no more crying, no more sickness, no more pain, no more sorrow. Like Jesus is going to make everything the way it always should have been. And isn't that amazing? Like what is, there's nothing to be scared about with that, is there? And I, and I I just didn't get it. N.T. Wright is a biblical scholar, and he, he said this. He said, the end times are not the end of the world. They are the beginning of the real world in biblical understanding. Isn't that good? 
And so what we believe as Christians is we believe that when Jesus came the first time, when he was born of a virgin and when he lived a sinless life and died on the cross to take away the sins of the world and rose again to invite us into new life, when that happened, that he inaugurated or he began the kingdom, his kingdom on earth, which means the way that Jesus has always wanted it, right? People live the way that God has always intended. Jesus started that when he came 2,000 years ago. That's what we believe. And we believe that we're in an in-between process. Theologians call it the already and not yet. Which basically means we're in this in-between process where Jesus has already started his kingdom. And God is in the process of reconciling the world to himself, which is what Paul writes about. And he says that we are to join Jesus in this reconciliation process, that Jesus is restoring the world. He's calling people to himself and he's making things the way that they always should have been. And at the end, at the very end, that Jesus is going to bring heaven here, that this is where he wants to live with us forever, that he wants to make all things new. You guys hear me? Now, I know that we're like halfway through the first verse, but it's super important for us to understand what James means when he's talking about the Lord's return. When he says the day of the Lord, in a lot of translations, that's what it says, the day of the Lord. And if we look at the day of the Lord throughout scripture, what it always does is it brings two things, okay? The first thing is judgment, right? It does bring judgment to those who resist the love of God, those who are against the way that Jesus has called us to live in the world, There's judgment, there's reconciliation, there's a reckoning that's coming, right? And then what it also brings is it brings reward. It brings reward for those of us that that have said, yes, Jesus, I want it your way. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, right? And so it's important that we understand that before we move forward. So let's look at... uh, Let's look at verse 7 and 8, the second half of 7, and we'll jump into 8. Consider the farmers who patiently wait for the rains in the fall and in the spring. They eagerly look for the valuable harvest to ripen. You too must be patient. Take courage. You see that? Take courage. For the coming of the Lord is near. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Take courage, right? He's encouraging them. He's, t- he's telling them, take courage. Be brave. Like, the coming of the Lord is near. It's going to happen, and it's happening soon, right? Jesus said that he's coming back, and he's going to make everything right. Amen? And so he's encouraging them. Now, he's writing here to an agricultural society, and we don't totally get it because we can just, like, run to Publix. Oh, we're out of green peppers. Great. Let's just, you know, Publix is two minutes down the road. Like, we don't really totally get it. But he starts talking here about harvest, right? I think this is super important that James kind of goes into this. Because if you think about it, if you lived in an agricultural society and you you did all this hard work to get the soil prepared and you planted the seeds and you watered them and you fertilized the ground, right? All the different things, anybody that gardens can attest, like it's a hard job, right? You work for a long, long time and then it comes to the point where it's time for harvest, right? Now, could you imagine if it was time for harvest and nothing came up? Could you imagine that? Or like, it's just tiny little tomatoes that you barely worth eating, right? Like, it would be devastating. Imagine there's no Publix to run to, right? And imagine that this is your only source of income. 
Imagine this is your only way of feeding your family. Like, all of your hope is in that harvest, right? All of your hope is, I did everything that I know how to do, and when this harvest comes, like, I really hope it's right, you know? I really hope that it doesn't let me down, right? Because could you imagine, like, if if harvest time came around and there just wasn't really much to report? Like, it would be devastating. And so what James is saying is he's saying, just like you wait for the harvest, just like you're patient and expectant that when the harvest comes, it's going to be a good harvest and it's going to take care of you and you're going to be all right. Wait on the return of the Lord like that. Because we know that when he comes, he's going to make everything right. And when he makes everything right, all will be well. Amen? So he's writing to these people that are in immense suffering and immense oppression. And he's saying, don't worry, be patient, take courage. Like, when Jesus comes, it's going to be all right. You hear me? And so I think the first thing that we need to do is we need to take courage. Imagine, imagine being a Jew when James writes this, right? Imagine this. And imagine you're living in a land, in a foreign land, where, where these wealthy people are just, they just have everything. And they're being so greedy with it, right? Can you imagine this, right? And James is essentially asking them, like, what are you investing in? Like, where, where is your hope? You hear what I'm saying? Because these wealthy oppressors, they had everything right here and right now. And so it looks like they're winning, right? And they cheated people, and they lied, and they exploited people to do it, right? And James told us in the first half of the chapter that their judgment is coming, that they have, that they're going to receive, they're going to reap what they've sowed, right? And he's telling these Jews, like, don't worry, because it might seem like you're losing now, but you're going to win later. That's what he's reminding them of. Imagine if I were to give all of you a $1 bill, okay? I give you all a $1 bill. And I say, all right, if you hold on to that $1 bill and you bring it back next week, I will exchange it for $1,000. Stack of 10 hundreds. Now imagine, those of us, a lot of us would probably be like, okay, great. <laughs> I'm bringing this dollar back next week. You better have the money, right? But imagine if some of us were like, you know what? There's that thing at the dollar store that I've been really wanting, right? Like, could you imagine that? Like, I, like there's this, like, candy bar that I just, man, I can't live without, like, a Snickers bar from the dollar store. Like, I have to have it, right? And so you leave here, and you go to the dollar store, and you buy the Snickers bar, and then you come back next, next week. Like, what would I say? I would say, well, you didn't believe me, did you? Right? Because if you really believed that next week all you had to do is hold on to it for a week and you're going to exchange $1 for 1000 you would have held on to that thing, right? But if you didn't believe me, if you say, ah, oh, this guy is kind of full of it, I don't think he's actually going to give me $1,000, then you might go out and spend it, right? And this is what James is saying. He's talking about harvest. He's talking about we reap what we sow because he's saying that these wealthy oppressors, they're getting all of all of what they want right now. And they think that this life is all that there is. And they think that they, if, if they can win in this life, that's a win, right? And James is reminding these people, listen, 
when Jesus comes, the last shall be first and the first shall be last. Like this whole thing is upside down and you need to remember that. Because you don't want to trade one dollar for a thousand. I mean, you don't want to spend one dollar and miss out on a thousand, right? And this is what James is telling them. This is, this is what James is reminding them of. So he's encouraging us to invest in the kingdom of God. To live the way that Jesus has called us to live. To, to see the kingdom expand and grow. To tell people about Jesus. Because in the end, like all this stuff that we have right now isn't going to last. But there's a kingdom that will. And James is saying, hey, this day is coming. And when that harvest comes, you want to have invested. Amen? And so James is encouraging us. Now, the second thing that I think we need to do, besides take courage, first was take courage. The second thing I think we need to do when we're experiencing suffering and when we're experiencing hardship is encourage. Encourage. Look at what he says here, James 5, verse 9. Don't grumble about each other, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. For look, the judge is standing at the door. Now, at first, when I first read through this passage, I was like, why does he go into, like, grumbling, right? Why does he go into complaining? Like, it almost seems like he's bouncing around a little bit, right? But listen, if we believed, if we genuinely believed that we, he says brothers and sisters, so he's talking about Christians. He's talking about people that are, that are together, people that all believe Jesus is Lord, right? If we believed that we had a job to do, like, if we believed that we were all on the same team and we were all fighting for the same thing, we wouldn't fight with each other. You hear me? This is not the first time James has talked about arguing or grumbling or the way that we use our tongues, is it? All throughout these five chapters, he's been saying, listen, if you actually believe that Jesus is Lord, this is going to affect the way that you use your mouth. And James says that if we all believe we're on the same team and if we're all working towards a common goal, we're not going to argue about silly stuff like if we like the music at church. We're not going to argue about silly stuff like tiny theological differences. We're not going to argue about silly stuff like differing political stances, right? We're not going to get caught up in that because all of that's going to fade away, right? Uh, So I remember when I was younger, um, we were hanging out at my grandpa's house in Michigan, and he's got a ton of land and a lot of really cool things to do on his land. And uh, my mom had just got this Honda Civic, and we thought this Honda Civic was so cool because it had a sunroof. You know what I'm talking about? Like when you were a kid, a sunroof was so cool, right? So the sunroof was like open a little bit because it was tinted, but we wanted the sun in. It's a sunroof, right? So it was open like a quarter of the way, right? Or maybe half, but probably a quarter. And I remember we were playing at grandpa's house and just hanging out and mom was inside the house and we were outside the house and mom had just said, hey, just like go play, like go wild. Grandpa's got a ton of land. Go just find something to do. Entertain yourself, right? And my brother Corey had his Game Boy in the car and the car was locked and my brother Corey decided you know what instead of finding anything else to do I really just want to play my Game Boy right so he's going to get into the locked car realizes it's locked and goes huh I have an idea I'll sneak in the sunroof right so he climbs up on top of the car and he goes to climb into the car through the sunroof and he's a skinny kid but he wasn't that skinny you know what I'm saying And he broke the sunroof. 
And I remember the moment that I found out he broke that sunroof, because the first thing in my mind was, Mom is going to come back and find out that we weren't doing what we, what we were supposed to be doing. You know what I'm saying? Mom is going to come back and I'm going to be in some trouble. It wasn't even me that did it, but I'm going to be in trouble. Do you guys know that? Know that feeling? And I just remember that moment. I was like, man, I, I'm in a mess of trouble. Like, we weren't doing what we were supposed to be doing, right? And I can just imagine, man. I, like Jesus said, love one another. He said that, that the world will know that we're his disciples by how we love one another, right? Jesus told us to go and make disciples. And I can just imagine Jesus coming back and, man, we broke the sunroof. Like, we weren't doing what we were supposed to be doing. You hear me? Like Jesus said, love one another and make disciples. And we got caught up in all this other silliness because we got so focused on the here and now. We got so focused on this world and our earthly kingdoms. And we forgot that Jesus told us to be about something. Like Jesus told us to be doing something. He gave us work to do. And we just got too caught up in the stupid stuff. You hear me? And this is what, this is what James is writing. He says, look, he says, the judge is standing at the door. He's like, listen, when Jesus comes back, if he finds y'all not doing what he said to be doing, things aren't going to go well, right? Jesus said, love one another and make disciples, and we get caught up in silliness. And it's just sad, because it's just showing that, that our priorities are out of whack, that our perspective is just messed up, right? And James is inviting us to not get caught up on that stuff. Like, could you imagine what it would be like? Could you imagine, man... What if we were a community that was marked by how we encouraged each other? Like, what if we were a community where it's just like, man, the compliments fly like crazy there. Like, every time I walk in those doors at Cane Bay, like, I just feel so uplifted and encouraged. Like, I feel like a take on the world because those people genuinely love each other. Like, we've been talking about this with word all year, right? What if we were genuinely with one another, not against, right? We get so hung up on against, and Jesus said to be with. What would it look like if we were really with each other? So this leads us to our third point. I think the third thing that James instructs us when we're going through suffering or hardship, you know, first was take courage. Second was encourage. We should encourage one another, right? Not get caught up in the small stuff. The third thing that James instructs us is be encouraged. Be encouraged. Look at this. Chapter chapter 5, verse 7. For examples of patience and suffering, dear brothers and sisters, look at the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Listen, prophets would stand up for what was right when Israel would get off track, Right? Israel would get off track. They would start to value earthly things or building their own kingdom. And the prophets would stand up and they would say, no, this, this isn't what our focus should be on, right? Like our focus should be on God and the way he told us to live in the world. And, and Israel's like, nah, we don't want to listen to this guy, right? And because of that, the prophets had really hard lives. Like Jesus talks about it too. I mean, Jesus came and told us the way to live in the world and we killed him, Right? Like the prophets had a very hard time. They were often beaten or despised or mocked or even killed because they said, hey, 
you're getting your perspectives all mixed up. This isn't what we're supposed to be living for. And the nation of Israel would kill the prophet over and over and over again because they didn't want to listen. And so James is saying that we can be encouraged because we look at these prophets and we know that their lives, even though they may not have been winning in this life, that we know that their treasure and their reward is in the life to come. Amen? And so he's saying, when we're experiencing suffering, when we're experiencing hardship, see, Jesus tells us, like, you will have trouble. In this world, you will have trouble. It's just a given. You follow me, people aren't going to like it. Like, there are people that are against the way of God in the world, right? But take heart, for I have overcome the world. And this is what James is saying, is look at the prophets. Like, their reward is in the life to come. And how much greater? This is the $1,000 for $1, right? They've invested in something so much bigger. Look at verse 11. He says, We give great honor to those who endure under suffering. For instance, you know about Job, a man of great endurance. You can see how the Lord was kind to him at the end. For the Lord is full of tenderness and mercy. Now he brings this Job character up. Job is a character from the Old Testament. He's got a whole book about what he went through. And if you've never read through the book of Job, you really should. I know it's kind of long, but you really should. It's, it's amazing. Um, and, and to kind of recap, if, if you guys don't know this story very well, what happens is Job is a very wealthy, very successful man. Scripture also tells us that he was righteous and that he actually did seek after God's heart. And then what happens is he lose all, loses all of his wealth. He loses his house. He loses his family. Even his wife tells him, curse God and die. He loses his health, gets boils all over his skin. And so he's just experiencing an immense amount of suffering, right? He's a righteous man. He was a wealthy, successful man, had everything going for him in this life, and then he lost it all. And there's a point towards the end of the book where Job finally goes, okay, you know what? I've endured long enough. I just need to know what's going on. (laughs) And so he says, God, what's going on? Can you tell me, right? And and here's the crazy thing. God answers. Let's look at this real quick. So God actually answers for four chapters. (laughs) Um, We're not going to read it all, right? But let's just read the very beginning because it's pretty amazing. It says, then the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind. Now, I have to pause right there. This is my one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. I remember when I was younger and we lived in Florida, there was a small, like a Category 1 hurricane that passed over where we lived. And we'd been through hurricane after hurricane after hurricane. So we were like, Category 1, it's like a light, like a light rain, you know? Like, we don't care. So we just stayed home, right? And I remember, like, we were, uh, we were chilling in our living room. I was watching Seinfeld with my dad. I don't remember why I remember this, but... Um, the eye actually passed directly over us. And if you know anything about hurricanes, which you probably do, we live in Charleston, right? Um, the eye wall is really, really, really strong. Like the eye wall is super strong. And we got hit, like the eye went right over us. So when the eye wall hit us, it was just unbelievable. Like it was a category one, but it felt like the house was coming down, right? And then there was a point where the eye wall passed us and we were in the eye of the storm. And everything stopped. Like it was just dead quiet. And my dad goes, guys, we got to go out there. Because this is like the only time you're ever probably going to get to see something like this in your life, right? So we go out there. And we were like tossing a football around in the eye of the storm. And I remember, I remember, this is Floridians for you, right? Like Florida people, man, they're crazy. But um, 
But I remember looking at the horizon and I could see the eye wall. It was the craziest thing in the world. And it was just like totally still, like no, no wind at all where I was. And then I looked and I could see just like chaos, like right there. And I, and I just, I remember that. I'll remember that for the rest of my life. And every time I read that, I, I, think, I think of that. Like, I think the Lord answered Job out of a whirlwind. Like, what that must have been like is, is insane. But, like, look at this, verse 2. He's, this is God speaking. He says, Who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorant words? Brace yourself like a man, because I have some questions for you, and you must answer them. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me, if you know so much. Who determined its dimensions and stretched out the surveying line? What supports its foundations and who laid its cornerstone as the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? Now, God continues this. Where were you? Did you do that? Oh, yeah, I didn't think so. Wait, where were you when I did this, right? He, he does that for four chapters. <laughs> he does. You should read through it, 38 to 42, uh, this week. To make some time. It's really worth it. It really is. It's amazing. Um, and God just kind of like puts Job in his place. But, but look at Job's response. This is amazing. 42, 2 through 6, Job says, I know that you can do anything and no one can stop you. You asked, who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorance? And it is I, and I was talking about things I knew nothing about. Things far too wonderful for me. You said, listen and I will speak. I have some questions for you and you must answer them. I had only heard about you before, but now I have seen you with my own eyes. I take back everything I said and I sit in dust and ashes to show my repentance. Now, I think there's something that we can miss here. Because yes, Job does question God and yes, God does show up and humble Job, right? Say, no, you don't understand. Like, you can't see everything that I can see. You don't know everything that I know, you know? Like, who are you that you can ask these questions? And God does humble Job, right? But I think if we're not careful, we miss something here. Look at what Job said. He said, I had only heard about you before, but now I have seen you with my own eyes. Job got to see God. Job got to see God. Look at, look at what, what David writes in the Psalms. It says, uh, Psalm 8, verse 3 through 4, it says, When I look at the night sky and see the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars you set in place, what are mere mortals that you should think about them, human beings that you should care for them? Like he's saying, when I look at the stars and the universe, like we talked, Joel talked about this a couple weeks ago, like we are so small compared to even what we know about our known universe that was spoken into existence by this massive, creative, powerful God, right? And David says, who are we that you should even think about us? But see, Job says, God, I need to know what's going on. And God shows up. Job got to see God with his own eyes. And that's the thing that turns him. You notice he said, I'd only heard about you before, but now I get to see you. And I think that that's powerful. I think that that, what that tells us is that God is not far from us in our suffering. Amen. I think sometimes we think of God as, as this far off 
powerful being. We think of him more like Zeus, to be honest. Like, we think he's somewhere else, and he's just kind of overseeing. And when something goes wrong, okay, zap, there's a lightning bolt, like, fix that problem, right? And that's not the God that we see in Scripture, is it? The God that we see in Scripture shows up out of the whirlwind, and yes, puts us in our place, but he shows up. Think about Jesus. Jesus didn't run from suffering. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is God incarnate, right? And what happened? He endured the most suffering any human ever has on the cross because he took on our sin. He didn't run from it. He didn't run from our shame, our suffering, our disease, our illness, our sin. Instead, he took it on himself and he died a sinner's death. He didn't have to. But God doesn't run from suffering. When we're experiencing suffering and hardship, God runs in. And he holds our hand. And he says, I'm with you through it. You guys hear me? God is with us in suffering. He is. So I had, I had this friend named Brian um, in, in Michigan. And, and uh, we met him. I had a group of, of friends that we would we would study the Bible and, and sing some worship songs together at a Starbucks that was around the corner from us. And so we would all just kind of gather, and, and it was just like a fun little thing we would do weekly. And, and Brian would always go to this Starbucks. And, and one day he, like, came out and joined us on the patio and was singing with us. And, um, and we met him and found out that he believed in Jesus as well. Um, and uh, he had this degenerative disease <clears throat> where he was in a wheelchair his whole life. And he had to be strapped up in the wheelchair because um, his he couldn't like his spine he couldn't um, couldn't hold himself up. So if he wasn't strapped up, like his whole torso would come down on his abdomen and he would suffocate basically. And so his whole life, ever since he was born, he's had to deal with this degenerative disease that just I mean he was he was constantly bound to his wheelchair, right? And I remember, man, our friends, my friends, man, we were a crazy group. We prayed every single week, laid hands on Brian and said, God, we know that you can heal him. God, we know that one of these days, because you can heal him, you are powerful enough to heal him, that one of these days we're going to unstrap him and he's going to stand up out of his wheelchair. We would pray that every single week, not lying. Every single week we would go before God and we'd say, God, we know you can do this. And, uh, like right before we moved to Charleston, so this was about two years ago, um, I, I saw on Facebook that Brian had passed away. Um, obviously, like God hadn't healed him like we'd prayed, and um, there was one night where his assistant had like not made it in time or something, and he wasn't strapped into his wheelchair when he went to sleep, and he fell asleep unstrapped and suffocated in his sleep. And it was really hard. Like, it was really hard to hear because this was a dear friend of mine, and I had prayed for him for, like, two years on end every single week with a whole group of people. And, like, I had said, God, I know you can do it if you want to do it, and God hadn't done it. And I'll be honest with you guys, I was angry. Like, I was really, I was mad. I was upset at God. And I had a Job moment where I said, God, what in the world are you thinking? (laughs) 
because it was so difficult. It was so hard, guys. I can't even tell you. Like, it just really rocked me. Like, it, sh- it shook my faith, like, in a real way. And I remember probably about two weeks after I had heard that Brian passed, I was talking to somebody that knew him, a mutual friend. And they said something that I thought was so beautiful, and it just really put me in check. This was the God coming to me out of the whirlwind moment. Because they said, you know, like, Brian's fully healed now. And you know, like, resurrection's a real thing, right, Chris? Like, you know that. And you know that the day of the Lord, when Jesus makes everything right, Brian's not going to have any more illness or disease. That Brian's spinal worked just fine in the resurrected body. And man, it was this moment where I just went, wow. I spoke of things I did not understand, right? And I had this moment where I realized, like, yeah, God did heal Brian. And God will heal Brian. And that when the day of the Lord comes, everything will be made new. Including him. And I realized that I had been putting so much stock in, God, you have to work this way. You have to do this thing. And you have to heal in this life. And you have to do this right now. And don't, don't get me wrong. God cares about the right now. God cares about the suffering that you're walking through right now. But I had this moment where I realized, like, man, my perspective is all out of whack. Because I'm totally discrediting the fact that one day, one glorious day, Jesus is going to make all things new. That the kingdom that he started 2,000 years ago will be fully realized and there will be no sorrow, no weeping, no pain, no illness, right? And I just had a moment where I praised God and I said, thank you so much, God. You're so much bigger than I understand, you know? And so James is telling us to be encouraged because we know that we have the ultimate hope. That Jesus didn't stay dead, instead he was resurrected on the third day, and he invites us all into resurrection life. And one day, every body will be raised from the dead, right? Like, God will make it all right for those that follow his way. So, this morning, I want to encourage you. I want you to be encouraged this morning. That God's not done yet. He won't leave us. He won't forsake us. And he's still in process. And so whatever you're walking through, I want to encourage you that God is working. And he is with you. And we can know this. And this is why we can sing what we sang earlier. I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Amen? Because one day all will be made new. And we know that. That's why we can sing. We're going to sing in a minute. It is well with my soul. Because I know that God is working. That God is moving. Amen. That God will not leave us. He will not forsake us. But this is not the end of the story. And we're all in process. So this morning, maybe this is the first time you're hearing any of this. Maybe this is the first time you're going, man, I never really thought about that. Resurrection sounds pretty cool. That would be awesome. Listen, we would love to pray with you today. We would love to invite you into this new life that Jesus is inviting you into. So I'm going to be in the back, and Pastor Will is going to be in the back. And if you guys want to talk to us about that, we would love to talk with you. But maybe you're here today, and 
and you, you know, you believe, you know, you've been following God, but you've been walking through some hard stuff and maybe your perspective has been out of line. Maybe you're listening to this and you're going, man, I really have been living for this kingdom. I've been living for my earthly kingdom and I've been building my own thing. And I want to realign my perspective a little bit and I want to get on God's page. Like I want to see the kingdom come. I want to see Jesus' kingdom come. I want to see his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. And so maybe today as we respond, your action point is to pray and say, Jesus, realign my perspective. Remind me of who you are. Show me how to walk in your way. Would you guys pray with me? Father, we thank you for this morning. I thank you for speaking through your word. And so Jesus, we pray that as we respond, God, as we sing, as we give, that our worship would be a response to your goodness that we know we know the hope that we have in you, Jesus. God, that you would realign our perspectives, that you would get us onto the same page as you and that, that you would teach us to live for your kingdom here and now because it matters. We love you. In Jesus' name, everyone said, amen. If you guys will stand and sing with us.